Today, this is Just World Podcast. I'm Helena Cobbin, the president of Just World Educational. We work to expand the discourse on vital issues of global peace and justice, especially in the long-troubled Middle East. This is the fifth episode in a special mini-series we're releasing as part of our Cast Lead Plus 10 project, which started on December 27th and will run till at least January 17th. This project marks the anniversary of the Operation Cast Lead Assault that Israel waged against Gaza during these same 22 days exactly 10 years ago. If you're on social media, we're using the hashtag hash plus 10 to draw together all the activities we're running on our Twitter and Facebook accounts. Do follow us on both platforms. On Twitter, our handle is at JustWorldEd, and on Facebook, we use the whole name JustWorldEducational. We also have a great resource page on CastLed on our website, www.justworldeducational.org, where you'll find links to all the episodes in this podcast mini-series and many other useful materials. So do check back there for regular updates, too. In this episode of the mini-series, you'll hear a conversation I held recently with Joe Catron, our Director of Outreach, about the legacies of Cast Lead. Joe is a veteran social justice activist who spent three-plus years in Gaza from March 2011 through fall 2014. Here's how our conversation went. Joe, um, I'm really delighted to have you here to talk to us about the legacies of Cast Lead, particularly because you saw them at first hand um, for the three years that you were in Gaza, 2011 through 2014. Um, so perhaps you could tell us in the first instance what drew you to go to Gaza uh, back then in, I believe, March of 2011. Well, I'd been some kind of a supporter of Palestine and the Palestinian cause for a number of years, mostly passively. I was one of the generation of activists who came of age around the global justice protests at the turn of the millennium about around global trade and finance. And then that fed very naturally into the anti-Iraq war protests. And Palestine was always a thread in that, of which I was supportive, but I hadn't been terribly active. It hadn't been one of my main issues until Operation Cast Lead, which was what really drew me in. And then a year and a half after that, after the Freedom Flotilla massacre in 2010, I became more of an active organizer, joining actual groups, showing up to meetings, as well as protests. And then in early 2011, I had an opportunity to actually go and see Palestine, which I hadn't done before and thought I should do. Um, this was an effort to basically test the Rafah border immediately after the fall of the Mubarak government in Egypt. The army had taken over direct control of it from the security op- or the, the security agency which had run it previously and we wanted to see what kind of approach they were going to take to it 
as it turned out, our experience was indicative of nothing moving forward. We got in very easily. We were actually the first group of foreigners to show up, and I think they had no idea what to do with us, so they waved us through. How interesting. So how, how, did, how long did you last in Gaza on that occasion? Uh, well, when I went, my initial plan was to stay with the delegation for two days, and as you know, I was still there three and a half years later. Um, it was, I kept stretching it out. Wow. So what kind of things were you doing while you were in Gaza for those three years? It was a mix of experiences, um, depending on what was going on. A lot of the time I focused on journalism, writing about things there for friendly media, mostly like Electronic Intifada, Middle East Eye, and assisting local organizations, running workshops and things like press releases and talking to Western media, that sort of thing. During the offensives, um, many of the foreign activists there would focus more on the activism. It was much harder to find a journalistic niche at a time when journalists were pouring into Gaza, and frankly, every story was being covered multiple times and usually fairly well. So you were there during the two Israeli assaults of late 2012 and the, then the 51-day assault of, in the summer of 2014. Could you kind of just quickly summarize some of what it was like for you to be under those assaults and then whether it was different for you than it was for your Gaza friends and colleagues? Well, I'll say at the outset that after 2014, I hardly remember 2012. Um, I think a lot of other people would say the same. I don't mean to make light of it. Obviously, there were many people who suffered and died, but after 2014, it kind of paled in significance. It was over very quickly, and during it, the international solidarity activists who were there, it passed so quickly we never really found our legs. We didn't quite figure out the strategy that we needed to take at the time. Um, a number of us spent time in hospitals reporting on what was going on there, but that was kind of a preview of what we would do much more intensely a couple of years later in 2014 when we spent extensive time in hospitals, which were under extensive threats of being bombed by the Israelis. The hospital administrators had an idea that the presence of foreigners might deter this. Um, it worked in one case at Al-Shifa. It didn't work in the first case we tried it at Al-Wafa, which was ultimately bombed and destroyed. In terms of experiences, how it worked for different kinds of people, I don't know. I think it all just varies. I was always aware that certainly the Israelis weren't trying to kill me personally. They were probably even making some effort to avoid it after their experiences with Cindy Corey, or excuse me, with Rachel Corey, not her mother, Cindy, and also Tom Herndal, when they got a bit of heat over their killing of killings of other activists within the international solidarity movement, which I was also part of. That wasn't an experience that they were eager to put themselves through again. 
I guess another difference would be that you were there without family members to worry about. But right. your colleagues must have been constantly, um, like, very, very worried indeed. That's true, although I would say that the foreigners in Gaza and also our Palestinian circle of friends, we were kind of like a dysfunctional extended family of sorts. They served the same function, basically, in terms of at least of having people to worry about. So um, were you able to move around Gaza when you were there, you know, both during those assaults and during the time between them? How, how did you get around? Yeah, I mean, I always had complete freedom of movement. There are very few restrictions on traveling around Gaza, aside from a few specifically military areas. Um, obviously, I did a lot less of it when there were airstrikes going on. I wasn't as eager to go out and take a long walk as I might have done otherwise. When there were active hostilities, I would be much more likely to travel in cars. Um, at one point, when we were going from one end of, or not from one end of Gaza, but from one side of Gaza by the coast to Al-Wafa Hospital, which is on the other side by the Israeli barrier, the hospital would send ambulances to transport us because no private drivers were willing to make that particular trip. What were some of the things that you saw during um, the 2014 assaults that really stayed with you? People coming together. That's really the main thing that sticks in my mind. The way all of Palestinian society, yeah, pulled it together and persevered, being at the hospital, seeing how everyone, whether they were officially on staff or not, would pitch in to make sure that things were taken care of, that food was provided, that trash was taken out, um, and the feeling of community of being down in the courtyard where the activists and the journalists and the hospital staff would all mix. That's really the one key thing that sticks in my mind, aside from all of the obvious wartime stuff. That is so interesting because, you know, I definitely heard from a lot of people who were in Lebanon during the Israelis' 2006 assault, that same, you know, overwhelming reaction of so many Lebanese of all, you know, sects and religions and, and politic, political groups coming together under the bombardment. It's actually, it's not so surprising to me because, you know, my family grew up in England with stories of the London Blitz and how, you know, everybody would just hunker down together in the in the London tube stations, people of social classes that wouldn't normally mix at all. Um, so it, that's something that is always interesting to me because, of course, one of the main goals of the Israelis in these assaults is to try to turn the population against the governing authority. That's something that they say. That's part of their external messaging. I've never been convinced that that's actually true because I'm not that much smarter than them. I'm reasonably sure they know the opposite is what inevitably happens. 
like it draws people and the resistance together. That's simply the effect, and they must know this. And yet they continue to to do these actions. I mean, do you have a an idea of why? Why they continue to do the military offensive specifically? Yeah. I mean, I think their objective is simply a military one to crush the resistance. And they had a few political outcomes in mind as well in 2014. As I remember correctly, at the outset, they listed three goals, if I'm not mistaken. One was to recover the young settlers who had been abducted in the West Bank. And this has to do with both the initial military operation there Operation Brothers Keeper, and what was really an extension of it in the Gaza Strip. That was the first goal. The second was disrupting the Palestinian Unity Agreement, which had just been adopted by Fatah and Hamas. And the third was striking a blow at Hamas and the other political and the other resistance groups militarily. Um, They knew at the time that the settlers were already deceased, so we know that that wasn't really at the top of their minds. The other two, I think, were basically correct. They wanted to reduce the military capacities of the resistance groups and obstruct steps towards Palestinian reconciliation. Interesting. Interesting. I've also thought that, you know, Maybe they would have liked an outcome similar to what happened with the PLO in Beirut in 1982, where, you know, under some kind of um, political agreement, the fighters leave the place and leave the place completely undefended and, you know, open to any any action that the Israelis choose to take. But, of course, the difference was in Lebanon there was a government. Right, and it is and it isn't all clear in the case of Gaza if Hamas were to evacuate its forces, what Israel would do with it. They don't want a complete vacuum there, certainly. And it isn't clear that they have any kind of coherent strategy towards it at all, other than keeping it contained, which seems to be the rationale behind most of their moves there. Well, we could talk a long time about this and Obviously, I want to at some point, um, but I want to reel back and just get into the whole issue of when you came back to this country and started talking to people about your experiences in Gaza or, you know, about Gaza in general and the Palestinian issue. What kind of responses have you gotten from people in this country? That's a very broad question, I know, but, you know, be as specific as you want in the, in the answer. You know, it had changed quite a bit, I think, in the time that I was gone. The mood had shifted, I suspect, largely as a result of the 2014 offensive, although since I wasn't here for the shift, it's hard for me to say exactly. A few weeks after I returned, I went to a kind of a fundraising gala put on by an organization I'd worked for many years before, which had a number of New York City Democratic politicians in attendance. and. I had friends there, mutual friends of ours, who told a number of them that 
I had just returned from Gaza, where I had been on the Palestinian side, and I stared a number of them down. I was in that kind of a mood, and they were quite nervous, but they didn't have anything to say. It wasn't a fight that they were willing to pick, and that was something that had certainly changed over a few years. And this spring, as you know, I went on a speaking tour organized by the International Solidarity Movement here. I did somewhere around 30 appearances overall across the United States, and not one public Zionist, not one figure representing the other side, ever showed up at a single event. That's really quite a shift in strategy on their part, and something that we wouldn't have seen certainly at the time when I left the country in 2011. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that Richard Falk and I were talking about yesterday was, you know, the fact that in many ways the sort of the public Zionism that one used to see has been decreased in its visibility and its effectiveness. Let's call it liberal Zionism. Um, But at the same time, you have these kind of very fervid, uh, campaigns by the ultra-Zionists to do things like, you know, the anti-BDS legislation and to shut down any any public discourse on Palestine. So things are, are definitely different than what they were 10 years ago. Um, right. And one interesting dynamic I think we're seeing that's a part of that is what we might call the ultra or the right-wing Zionists really throwing the liberal Zionists under the bus. I mean, Netanyahu's coalition government, in which Netanyahu isn't even the most extreme figure by far, is really making it impossible for anyone here to maintain the pretense of liberal Zionism with a straight face. It's just becoming really impossible for them to do. So there's probably a lot of openings that um, we all, who all of us who, who care about Palestinian rights and about the ability of the Palestinians to to enjoy their full rights, there's probably a lot of openings that we can pursue in the coming months. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think we're seeing a real moment of opportunity here. The fact that we have the first two members of Congress who are open supporters of the BDS movement, or the fact that a debate on Israel and anti-DDS laws is now being forced, I'm just reading this in the Washington Post, in the Senate. That's something that we wouldn't have seen very recently and is, I think, indicative of broad shifts at the grassroots. The problem we face, frankly, is that we don't have enough of a movement in place to take advantage of these shifts. Really, public opinion is moving more rapidly than political mobilization. And that's an issue that needs to be addressed. I think so. Um, I think the kind of the educational part of this is what we do. um, Absolutely. You know, really make a a unique contribution. Well, listen, thank you so much for giving me your time, Joe. Um, I'm hoping to see you soon in New York City. Absolutely. Um, So I hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Joe Catron and found it informative. This is the fifth episode in our podcast mini-series on cast-led plus 10 years. We'll be releasing more episodes next week. 
the next big event in our Cost-Led Plus 10 campaign will be a Facebook Live session we'll be conducting this Saturday at noon New York time, 7 p.m. in Palestine, with the great Gaza-Palestinian activist Yusuf El-Jamal. If you're on Facebook, be sure to tune in, and do invite your friends, too. Yusuf is a writer, editor, translator, and social activist who grew up in a refugee camp in Gaza. He was in Gaza during Cast Lead, but right now he's doing graduate studies in Turkey. In 2014, he contributed a fine short story to the collection Gaza Writes Back, published by Just World Books. He also toured the United States that year with two other young Gaza writers. Among his many projects, Yusuf has edited and translated into English a collection of extracts from the diaries of Palestinian prisoners. So this Saturday, January 12th, at noon New York time, tune in to the Facebook page of Just World Educational to hear and join Yusuf's discussion of Cast Lead and its legacies. By the way, you can find links to the earlier episodes in this podcast miniseries and a lot more resources about Cast Lead and its legacies on our website at www.justworldeducational.org. And we're lining up some more podcast episodes for the miniseries too, so stay tuned. Thanks, stay well, and I hope you can join our Facebook Live discussion on January 12th.